I'm Chrisanne Rice. I've lived in Sitka and listened to Raven Radio since 1984. I stream Raven when I'm out of town, as I am right now in Juneau. I was in Haines for the recent landslide and valued the Southeast Public Radio family of stations that quickly and accurately reported that event in ways we could all help out our neighbors. I love hearing familiar voices and stories about my town when I'm outside. That's one reason I'm a sustaining member. Please join me at kcaw.org slash donate. Thanks. Good morning. It's 11 minutes before 7 o'clock. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Thursday, April 8th, 2021. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. The Sitka Sound Sacro Herring Fishery opened for the 12th day in a row, Wednesday. The estimated harvest from Wednesday's commercial opener is not yet available. Tuesday's fishery took in around 1,000 tons, according to a press release from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Overall, saners have caught just under 16,000 tons of herring. The fishery will remain open until ADFNG announces a closure, but the daily harvests are getting smaller as the herring continue to spawn. During an aerial survey this morning, state biologists observed around 28 miles of spawn. Much of the spawn was concentrated along the Kruzoff Island shoreline from Lava Island to Rob Point. Spawn was also observed near the Magoon Islands, Pramisla and Eastern Bays, Whiting Harbor, Indian River, and Pirates Cove. Over a year and a half, over a year after a Washington state-based conservation group filed suit in federal court to halt commercial fishing for king salmon in Alaska, the state of Alaska has decided to intervene in the case. In March, a judge in the U.S. District Court of Western Washington ruled that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game had standing in a lawsuit brought by the Wild Fish Conservancy against the National Marine Fisheries Service. The suit is intended to protect an endangered population of killer whales in Puget Sound. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The news that the state of Alaska has thrown its weight behind the defense in the lawsuit comes as a relief to Amy Doherty, executive director of the Alaska Trollers Association. It's just great to have them on our team. Trolling is one of the most lucrative fisheries in southeast Alaska, and king salmon are trolling's most valuable product. The suit brought by the Duval, Washington-based Wild Fish Conservancy, if it succeeds, would be a serious blow to the salmon industry in the region, which among all species produces $800 million in total output and supports over 6,000 jobs, according to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. In a news release, ADF&G Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang views the lawsuit almost as an affront to the department's dedication to careful management. He writes, Sustainable management of our fisheries was one of the primary drivers behind statehood, I don't take unjustified accusations and threats to state management of our resources lightly. Vincent Lang went on to write, We have a responsibility to look out for our fisheries and the citizens of Alaska that rely on them. The Wild Fish Conservancy filed suit against the National Marine Fisheries Service and filed a request for a preliminary injunction to halt the commercial fishery in Alaska in March of 2020. At the time, the estimated population of southern resident killer whales had dropped to about 70 individuals. The Wild Fish Conservancy blames some of the decline on the decrease in available king salmon due to the interception of kings by commercial trollers in southeast Alaska. 
Faced with an injunction that could have blocked the 2020 season, the Alaska Trollers Association raised money and hired lawyers to intervene on behalf of the National Marine Fisheries Service. ATA Director Doherty wishes the state had come on board back then. It's a lot for this small organization to involve themselves um, in a major lawsuit. And had we seen them rallying to involve themselves, there's a fair chance that we maybe wouldn't have. Reached for comment by KCAW, Rick Green, special assistant to the commissioner for ADF&G, said that the department was waiting to see how the federal judge ruled on the Conservancy's request for a preliminary injunction before deciding to intervene. U.S. Magistrate Judge Michelle Peterson denied the injunction in June of 2020. As the case moves forward, it's now the Wild Fish Conservancy versus the National Marine Fisheries Service, the Alaska Trollers Association, and the state of Alaska. The lineup in court, however, will look different. The Trollers' lead counsel, Thane Teensen, something of a legend in Pacific Northwest fisheries law, died of a heart attack in January of this year. It's very unfortunate, said Amy Doherty. Thane had a great, long-standing reputation in this area of fisheries. The ATA has since retained Douglas Stedding with Northwest Resource Law in Seattle as its lead counsel. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Last December, a record-breaking storm caused landslides and flooding around southeast Alaska. In the roughly 100-person town of Tenakee Springs, the storm destroyed a bridge that provides vital access for a handful of residents. Now, as KCAW's Erin McKinstry reports, the community's turning to crowdfunding to help rebuild it. On December 2nd, Tenakee residents awoke to find their beaches littered with logs as big as two and a half feet in diameter. Gordon Chu was part of the cleanup crew at the time. We've been out all morning here with the tide coming in because the entire beach in front of all our houses are literally just littered with debris that's come down out of the rivers. Never seen anything like this before uh, in the almost 20 years we've been here. A gauge on the mountain behind town recorded more than five inches of rainfall in 24 hours. The storm uprooted trees and sent them hurtling downstream, clogging culverts and causing flooding. They also knocked out the 22-year-old Indian River Bridge, which stood 20 feet above the river. It was well built and it just never even crossed our minds that a whole pile of trees would come floating down and catch it with their big tall branches. That's Tenakee resident Steve Lewis. The bridge served as the only land access to town for him and his partner, Rachel Myron. Since December, they've relied on their skiff to get supplies, pick up their mail, and visit with friends. But rough weather, tides, and darkness can make accessing town by water tricky for the handful of East End residents. Myron and Lewis live four and a half miles outside of town. In terms of our lifestyle, we're, very, we're tied to that bridge. It's important to us. One of the reasons we enjoy and chose to live here is kind of that reassurance of access to town and in particular to the infrastructure of the ferry and all of that. But it's more than just practical. Myron says the suspension bridge was symbolic of the town's commitment to pedestrian access. And she says it was a joy to walk across. I always hung out in the middle of the bridge where the bouncing effect was the biggest. And from there you can look up and down river and watch the bears and watch the salmon and just take a deep breath and 
celebrate where we are. Mayor Dan Kennedy says the town has reached out to state and federal officials about possible disaster relief funds to help rebuild the city-owned bridge. The town's partially finished hydroelectric plant was also badly damaged in the storm, along with two other bridges. We don't know if we're going to get any disaster relief funds or state funds or FEMA funding, and probably even if we do, it will be you know a year or two down the line, which isn't very adaptable for the residents out there. The city doesn't have the money to repair the bridge on its own. So when a local resident started a $15,000 GoFundMe account, the council thought, why not? With some volunteer labor and local expertise, the fund should cover the cost to rebuild the bridge and restore access for residents like Lewis. Very similar to when we have an accident or a situation with the entangled whale or whatever. Everybody who knows how to help and can help comes together and finds a way to help each other in this town. And that's one of the beauties of living here. So far, the fund is about a fifth of the way toward its goal. Kennedy says if they do receive state or federal funding down the line, they'll reimburse the costs. But in the meantime, he says, they couldn't afford to wait. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Erin McKinstry. The state of Alaska is suing major suing manufacturers of a pair of the toxic PFAS compounds that have contaminated groundwater across the state. The lawsuit was filed Wednesday, April 7th, and names chemical giants 3M, DuPont, and others. It alleges the companies produced toxic chemicals for decades that do not break down, and it says that they now present a significant threat to the health of Alaskans and the state's natural resources. Environmentalists called the state's lawsuit long overdue. Alaska lawmakers have been urging the governor to do more to regulate PFAS compounds, says Pamela Miller of Alaska Community Actions on Toxins in Anchorage. It was more than a year ago that 16 legislators, both Democrat and Republican, signed a letter to the governor asking him to file a lawsuit on behalf of Alaskans and people contaminated by PFAS. The lawsuit focuses on two compounds, PFOS and PFOA, that are contained in firefighting foams commonly used at airports. They're designed to suppress jet fuel fires. The PFAS chemicals do not break down and, if ingested over time, can lead to health problems including cancer. Environmentalists criticized the Dunleavy administration for rolling back the state's drinking water standards to regulate only two types of the PFAS chemicals. She says the lawsuit focuses on these two specific chemicals, even though the firefighting foams named in the lawsuit contain a complex mixture of PFAS compounds. It was more than a year ago that 16 legislators, both Democrat and Republican, signed a letter to the governor asking him to file a lawsuit on so that just by focusing on these legacy chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, I think there's really a possibility of missing a number of important PFAS chemicals that are also causing harm to communities and drinking water sources around the state. The lawsuit's filing comes the same day as a PFAS-related bill filed by State Senator Jesse Keogh. It would expand the number of PFAS compounds currently regulated by the state. It would also require PFAS polluters to pay for clean drinking water and blood tests for affected Alaskans. The Juno Democrat applauded the Attorney 